0: Now, as I guess about 40% of you already know, the Masters Golf Tournament was last weekend. For the other 60% of you, the Masters Golf Tournament was last weekend. Now, if you are of that 60% who did not know this information, then you're probably of a group of people that do not have much televised sports happening at your house. Now, I would argue that I do not have a lot of televised sports going on at my house. And I mean that in the sense that I don't focus on trying to find televised sports to watch. I don't organize my schedule around finding uh, what sports are on. I don't kind of work my Sunday afternoons to catch a certain game. Some of you do, and that's okay. I, however, do not. But what I do enjoy... It's a little like one of those little thrills in my life is when I go home and I have to grade papers or work on the bills and I turn on the TV and a sport happens to be on and I'm like yes because I like having sports on while I pay the bills or grade papers or you know write sermons (laughs) but I would say that I am not a televised sports nut but I do appreciate sports, and I appreciate particularly what can be learned from playing sports. There's life lessons in sports, isn't there? For example, sports help you to realize some of the harsh reality of life. Like many situations in life, has a winner and a loser. It's a good lesson to learn because there's times in life where you're going to win, and there's times in life where you are going to lose. Now, It doesn't matter the sport. It doesn't matter if it's golf or rugby or track or curling. That's the ice thing. (laughs) There's a winner and there's a loser. If you're doing something where there's not a winner and a loser, then you're probably on a t-ball field with your five-year-old where everyone scores and everyone wins. And that's so nice. And that's fine and it's fine. I was there. But when that five-year-old becomes six and seven and eight, They'll be a winner, and they'll be a loser. And in sports, the goal is to not be the loser. In case you're not into sports, I wanted to clear that up. The goal is to not be the loser, because losing brings all kinds of bad emotions. Anger, sadness, sorrow are all kind of wrapped up with being the loser. That's why in tournaments, when you're playing for third place, it's called the consolation game. It's because you need to be consoled about the fact that you are a loser. (laughs) And you have to play yet one more game, not to try to be the winner. You already know you're not the winner. You're just trying to be less of a loser. (laughs) And so they console you with the consolation game. No one wants the emotional weight that comes with being a loser, the sorrow, the sadness, and perhaps the greatest and most difficult emotion of all, the disappointment. Disappointment is a powerful emotion. We've all experienced it. If you've had a mother, you've experienced it. You get your, you get your um, report card, it has a C on it, you come home, You hand it to mom. She looks at it. You say, mom, are you mad? She says, no, honey, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh, you hate it. You're like, no, just be mad. Please be mad. (laughs) Don't be disappointed. Disappointment is a powerful emotion, and we wish to avoid it. We don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to disappoint others. We don't like disappointment. Recently, the U.S. men's soccer team failed to make it to the London Olympics. Not that I was writing this sermon with a sport on the TV. This is just a sport illustration. I want you to listen to the words that CNN used to describe the loss. The United States men's Olympic soccer team had its hopes dashed Monday night after a dramatic late goal killed its chances of going to London. That's just some strong words. Dramatic, dashed, killed. It's disappointment. In an interview afterwards, the coach of the team called this disappointment, called the emotions, quote, unimaginable. Pretty powerful emotions. Disappointment. And it's in no way unique to sports but it's a good place to start dealing with disappointment because our lives are full of them. It's just something we must accept. As I thought about this during the week and sort of kind of watched as my life went along, I realized I was running across disappointments all the time, little disappointments in life. Many of you may remember a scene from the movie The Princess Bride. There's a man in black, and he's sword fighting Indigo Montoya. And Indigo Montoya, who supposedly is the best, realizes all of a sudden that the man in black is at least as good. And Indigo Montoya says, he asks, who are you? That's that's my best Spanish accent. That's, That's all I got for you. He says, who are you? And the man in black says, no one of consequence. And Montoya says, oh, I must know. And the man in black says, get used to disappointment. To which Indigo Montoya responds with a shrug. Okay, and they keep fighting. I think we need to take just that kind of view of the disappointments in life sometimes. They're going to happen. Disappointments in life, little disappointments, are going to consistently happen. A store is out of the item that you were hoping to buy. That little sapling that you planted last fall is dead. It's dead. Move on. That vacation home that you rented online turns out not to have indoor plumbing. These are disappointments in life. (laughs) And you just sometimes have to just shrug and say, okay, okay. But wouldn't it be nice if life were filled with just these little disappointments? But it's not. Not all disappointments are quite so easy or quite so small or quite so inconsequential. Sometimes we deal with major disappointments. Disappointments that sit on our souls and weigh us down. Disappointments that are life-changing and life-altering. Many of us have experienced these these kinds of disappointments. You may be experiencing one now or recently, or, or maybe it happened a while ago, but the disappointment is still weighing on you. It still drags. What do we do with disappointment that we can't just shrug away? Pray with me. Lord, we're going to enter your word together today, this morning, right now as a community. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would empower me to speak your truth, to speak your words, and that your Holy Spirit empower the hearts of the listeners to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Place yourself back. It's Sunday afternoon. The Sunday afternoon of the resurrection. It's a confusing time. The Friday horror of Christ's death and the deathly silence of Saturday has erupted into the bewilderment of Sunday morning. The stone is rolled away, the body is gone. The women claim to have seen angels. It was just too much. Even amongst his closest disciples, some were saying, he is risen. And others were saying, I will not believe that until I touch the nail-scarred hands. There's confusion amongst the disciples. What are they to do? Turn with me to Luke 24, verse 13, if you would, in your Bibles. Luke 24, verse 13, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you, if you don't have your own. Luke 24, verse 13. What are the followers of Christ to do in such confusion? Well, a couple of them decide to go on a journey, to take a walk, maybe to go home. They take a seven-mile trek to Emmaus. Look at verse 13. Now, that same day, that is the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He, Jesus, asked them, What are you two discussing as you walk down the road? They stood still, their faces downcast. Now sometimes when I've imagined this road to Emmaus, pair walking at the beginning of the journey, I imagine it more optimistic than I think the text actually says that it is. I've sort of, in the past, imagined sort of this like lively, upbeat conversation. Maybe he's alive, maybe he's alive. But that doesn't seem to be the tack they're taking. It says their faces are downcast. They are crestfallen. I think that word crestfallen, it gives us a good imagery. That's the idea of, you know, a, a a, a, a bird that has their plume and their crest is fallen or a, or a soldier's with his plume and his head is, is drooped and, is, and he's looking at the ground. His whole posture shows himself to be crestfallen, to be downcast. They are not able to believe that Christ has risen, so they shuffle along the road disappointed. So Jesus asks them what they are discussing But, of course, they don't know that it's Jesus talking to them. More on that later. Here is his response in verse 18. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor uh, to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened here these days? Which is a way of saying, Where have you been? How did you miss this? And Jesus, of course, they don't know it's Jesus, but Jesus says, "What, what, What things? It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You see, there is a precursor to disappointment. Before you can experience disappointment proper, you must experience something else. Not every loss in life is accompanied by disappointment. Again, thinking about sports, if you you go to a game knowing you're the underdog, knowing that you're completely overmatched, you might feel sad to lose. But you, you wouldn't feel disappointment per se because your expectation wasn't to win. So you see, in general, disappointment happens in our lives when we have an expectation that ultimately goes unfulfilled. Before you have disappointment, you must have expectation. So interestingly, the precursor to disappointment is hope. Disappointment is hope unrealized. It's hope unfulfilled. It may be your hopes or another hopes. It may be a realistic hope or an unrealistic hope. But whatever it is, when expectations are not met, then we experience this thing called disappointment. And oftentimes, we have high hopes. And so therefore, we have deep disappointments. My mother, who is sitting right here, as long as I can remember, has had a habit that I'm going to share publicly with you without her knowledge. But if you know her, you'll know this habit. And that is, if you say the lyric of a song and it triggers in her mind, she will begin singing the song to you. Now, my, the problem is, and well, I mean, there's probably multiple problems, but the problem that I want to focus on is that that every song that comes to her is is from a decade previous to the 1960s. So my entire understanding of decades of music is through these little snippets that my mom would sing all growing up. And as I began to grow, I began to learn the key words that I under all circumstances must avoid. Because it would trigger so you can imagine at some highly formational age, I'm sitting at the dinner table with my friends, my mom. And one of my friends is talking and, and in conversation, he uses the phrase, high hopes. And I go, no, 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 oh, no, 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 My mom perks up and she bursts out into these lyrics, which are completely incomprehensible to, this, to a 16-year-old in the 1980s. Just what makes that little old aunt. Think he'll move that rubber tree plant. Mom, please, please. Anyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant, but he's got high hopes. He's got high hopes. He's got high apple pie in the sky. Hopes. You you uh you you can pray for me. It's feel feel free. These walkers to Emmaus they had had high hopes. They had had high apple pie in the sky hopes for what Jesus was going to do, and he disappointed them. Their expectations of Messiah that would crush Rome and raise Israel to the status of a political empire were dashed. Nothing was as they expected and they were crushed by the reality of it. Their high hopes crashed into deep disappointment and so do ours sometimes. We have high hopes. We have high apple pie in the sky hopes that sometimes go unfulfilled. Notice the words used by the travelers in verse 21. They had hoped. These words, had hoped, weighed on these travelers, and the words weigh on us. We had hoped not to lose our job. We had hoped that married life would be better. We had hoped that some friendship would be restored. We had hoped that our adult children would be following God. And these had hopes will often turn into unmet expectations, and these had hopes weigh us down. They burden us down. And sometimes these had hopes, these disappointments with a particular situation, they turn into disappointment with God. A loved one dies, a marriage fails, A job is lost, and we feel disappointed with God. Not angry, not shaking our fists, not denying our faith, but simply looking at God and saying, I had hoped. God, I had hoped. If you've experienced this, then you've walked the road of Emmaus. Face downcast. Saying to Jesus, we had hoped. We had hoped. We say, God, I had hoped. Well, what does Jesus offer? Look in verse 25. He says to them, how he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way, and how they had recognized and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. What do we do with life's disappointments? What is offered for those of us traveling the road to Emmaus with our faces downcast and our crests fallen? Well, I think the first thing that I would offer you from this passage is to note that the travelers talk about it. The travelers stay in fellowship with at least each other about their disappointments. They talk about it. This is a good place to start when it comes to disappointment. Interact with other followers of Christ about your disappointment. I'm not saying you announce it or you put it in the church bulletin. I'm simply saying that you enter in the conversation about other, with other believers about your disappointment because oftentimes in the conversations with other believers, Jesus appears. Wisdom appears. Clarity appears. Someone who experienced your exact disappointment appears. In our conversations, in our journeying together, Jesus appears. One of the great temptations in the midst of disappointment is to separate ourselves from other Christians. We want to kind of hide ourselves and and hole up in a corner somewhere because the disappointment with God is so great. But I think this is the opposite of what we see modeled in the road to Emmaus. Disappointment is a reason to draw together as followers of Christ, not to draw away. So if you are struggling with disappointment with God right now, then you are in the right place. And we're glad you're here. Because you're here submitting yourself to the word of God, interacting in the fellowship of God, worshiping God. You are in the right place. Each morning when I'm leaving to go to work at about 6.15, I pass two women who are always walking towards me, and they're walking and talking. And they must have done this for years. Every day that I go to work, I pass these two women walking and talking. So much so that when I don't see them, I get worried for them. I don't even know them. I'm like, oh no, where are my two ladies that usually walk and talk? And I've thought about the times they've spent together. And on these walks and talks, they must have solved a million problems, cried a million tears, and dealt with a million disappointments together. And tomorrow morning, when I head to school at 6.15, they will be on the road walking and talking. And I think this is an excellent image of the journey that we take together, sharing our lives, walking and talking, supporting and caring. Offering help, offering hope. There's a Latin phrase in its original context that has nothing to do with the road to Emmaus, but I'm going to reapply it. The phrase is this, salvator ambulando. Salvator ambulando, which means it is solved in the walking. Let's continue to walk together. Salvator ambulando. It is solved in the walking. Secondly, notice that Jesus offers scripture to them as a help for their disappointment. And this is very much like we do with church. A lot of times in the, in, the, in the height of disappointment, instead of moving ourselves into the fellowship, we move ourselves out of it. And same happens with scripture. Oftentimes, instead of moving ourselves more fully into scripture, we feel disappointment, so we move out of it. We decide, oh, the Bible's not helpful for me. So we stop. But when Jesus appears, he brings them back to Scripture. He says, let me show you all the places that the Christ appears. And later they admit that their their hearts burned inside them as Scripture was presented. As the power of the Holy Word of God sank into their souls and began to clarify their distress and disappointment. Now, there's an irony in this suggestion that we go to Scripture. Because I know that sometimes our disappointment with God, we feel disappointed with God and we go to Scripture and we feel like God's not talking to us in Scripture and therefore we become doubly disappointed with God. And there may be a lot of reasons that this happens, but I think one of the reasons is that we approach the Scripture wrongly. We approach it too much sometimes like a book of magic tricks or a recipe book or a how-to guide. We sort of randomly open it up hoping to find the right recipe. And by God's grace, as many of you know, by God's grace sometimes we open it up and God speaks to us from some random passage in Malachi and we know the Spirit has spoken to us. But the model that Jesus gives us on the road to Emmaus is a more cumulative model. It doesn't say, well, when Jesus responded by hunting and pecking through through Psalms for a while until he found the right verse. Right? It says he went from the beginning of Scripture to the end and showed all the places where the Christ was present. What we need to deal with our disappointments is a habit of being in Scripture. That we take in the words of God not in a I want to solve today's problem sort of way, but in I want to understand the mind of God sort of way. To understand the ways of God, we must understand the mind of God. And we do this through consistent study of Scripture. And so what Jesus is doing on the road by explaining all these things from Scripture is he reorients their expectations, which is what fellowship and, and, and the Scripture does for us. It reorients our expectations. And this helps relieve disappointment. Which leads me to one last thought. You've certainly noticed that Jesus is intentionally hiding himself for a period of time. It says he, the, he, the, the, the travelers were kept from seeing him. And there's a lot of plays in this passage on seeing and not seeing. And it makes you wonder, it makes me wonder, why doesn't Jesus reveal himself earlier? He had ample opportunity. When he first appeared, he could have said, hi, I'm Jesus. But he doesn't and then he lets them explain what happened that day, and at the end of their discouragement, they say, "Ugh, oh, you know, the women claimed that he rose, but when we went to the tomb, we didn't see him. But of course, they're saying that to him. He could have been there at that moment. He could have been like, well, you see me now. Right? Like, why didn't he reveal himself at that moment? And then, apparently, he goes for several hours talking all through Scripture about the Christ, but does it in third person, like it's not him. That seems like it could have been a good time to reveal who he was. And then, and then at the table, he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread and hands it to them, all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they see him. And what happens? He disappears. The moment he is he seen and recognized, he disappears. What is that? What is Christ doing with this whole seeing me, not seeing me uh, routine? that goes on with the road to Emmaus. Well, here's what I'd like to suggest. I'd like to suggest that Jesus is modeling for them the upcoming role of the Holy Spirit and beginning to teach them by saying the physical presence that you've become used to is going to be transformed into a spiritual presence that you need to start getting used to. You're not going to see me like you used to. You're going to have to see differently. In short, he's almost saying to them, listen guys, no longer can you believe your eyes. You're going to have to learn to see differently. Just later in this very same text, in verse 49, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, meaning the Holy Spirit. But stay stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. This week, I had an eye problem. I went to the doctor. My eye was painful and swollen. I went to the doctor and I was diagnosed with iritis, which is sort of like a swelling of the eyeball. Iritis is a sanitary medical term for feeling like your eyeball is going to explode out of your head. So sometimes I couldn't see. Bright light felt like it was like shining right onto my frontal lobe. And even now, this side of my... Obviously, I'm just wearing my glasses, can't wear contacts. This side of my face, or this side of my eye, is still kind of fuzzy. Like, like, I can't really tell. Like, you all could have stood up and left, and I wouldn't have known. But thanks for staying, by the way. Appreciate that. My sermon notes, which usually clock in at eight pages, I'd write in this huge font so that I could see it. Twenty pages. We're on page three, so we're getting there. So I was obsessed this week with my eyesight while at the same time writing about this section on spiritual eyesight, and I realized when my eyes started to get funky, I was on it. At the doctor's, I got eye drops, I got like a whole row of them, I just lie, just lie myself under them and just drop them in. I was on it. I'm not going to mess with my eyes. And yet I'm so much slower to diagnose and take care of spiritual fuzziness when the eyes of my spirit have got darkened, I just start living with it. I decide it's okay if things are a little fuzzy. We begin to depend so much on our physical eyes that we don't realize that our spiritual eye has been darkened by disappointments. That we are hanging on to the had hoped of our lives and it is blinding us. But notice how on the road Jesus pushes them to look and to see differently. You see, they had hoped for something and they felt disappointed. But they failed to see that they actually were hoping for too little. They said, ah, Jesus was supposed to redeem Israel and make us a great nation. And Christ comes and says, I died and offered salvation to all humanity. It was kind of a bigger hope than yours. So he took their had hoped and he made it subservient to the greater hope. You Follow? And so too must we. We're going to have these had hopes in our lives. We're going to have these hopes that don't pan out for us and we're going to feel disappointment. But we always must take these had hopes, and we must make them subservient to the greater hopes that will not disappoint. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. But sometimes we've lived for so long by sight alone that we've forgotten what it feels like to feel the burning of the Spirit guiding us. And I think the Holy Spirit in this passage and Jesus' words reminds us that it gets better than this. God will not disappoint. Look deeply, not with your eyes, but with the burning of your hearts. We always have hope. We always have hope. Sometimes we simply need to have the eyes of our spirits opened to see that hope, and be reminded of the grander hopes, grander than your greatest pie-in-the-sky hope you can imagine. Scripture promises us, God promises us, and he will not disappoint. In my Father's house, Jesus says, there are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for you. The psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And John in Revelation says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. We have been given grand hopes that will not disappoint. Today may be the day for you to believe again to hope again. Notice that Jesus began his response to the traveler's disappointment by saying they were slow to believe. But he goes on to remind them and to remind us that we believe not because of what we can see. We believe because of what Christ has done. He is risen. And because of his resurrection, we always have hope. You always have hope. Have hope. And you may not see it fully now. But the testimony of so many, as you know, is is sometimes you look back and you say, oh, God was with me all the way. And so we can agree with the words of the hymn writer Fanny Crosby, who was blind but very much could see. When she wrote, all the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hereby faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well.